good afternoon and welcome Dr. Hillard. Thank you. We're here for our sixth JPAG podcast, the second one of 2020. So uh, let's start with our book review. We agreed uh, and planned to talk about the book called Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. So it, um, it kind of presents a harsh reality <laughs> and sort of alludes to our naivete and and our optimism as we kind of connect and relate to other humans. But we were talking just before the podcast that it's a little disconcerting. It, it definitely <laughs> was disconcerting to me. I tend to, I, I want to believe people, um, look them in the eyes and, and assume that they're telling me the truth. Um, truth default was the term that Gladwell uses. And so I think most of us sort of operate with that truth default. And uh, they talked about the, some of the cases. And, and I have to confess, I'm not completely done with the book. So you you beaten me to the end. Um, but I, I've gotten uh, enough of the gist um, to really see how disconcerting it is of uh, these episodes of of um, spies where there is deception uh, of, of um, major situations, people who were counter spies and spies. I've always concluded I would be a terrible spy. Um, I'm <laughs> I think, not I think, good at telling lies. <laughs> right. I know. I, think most, I feel the same way. Exactly. <laughs> so that was, that was funny. The other thing that it made me think about was um George W. Bush's statement about Putin, he said that he looked him in the eye and was able to get a sense of his soul. Um, so I, I remember that that quote uh, yeah. from Bush. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting now as our current president is talking about the the relationships he has with various world leaders. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel like it really resonated with me as we sort of work in this world of social media and Facebook and trying to educate um, our younger patients and certainly even our families about social media that things look one way and there's they aren't and this book just really talks about that like there's just so many assumptions that we make because that's how our brains work and that's how we've evolved to be so I felt yeah, like it, I, it made you have a different perspective you wanted I went into that book thinking one thing and came out thinking differently Differently. So, yeah. Well, that's what it should, what a good book should do is right. make us think. So, right. no, but I love your, your comment about social media, because we do try to make that, that point to, to the young women that we see that the person that they're talking to, that they think is another young woman might be someone else, or they think it's a young man that they're speaking to in a chat room. And it turns out to be a 45 year old man. So yeah. Right. So right. disturbing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I think, I mean, the, and the last comment I thought on the book was just, you know, we're learning so much more about having a growth mindset instead of a fixed mindset. And I think this book challenges you challenged me to do that, you know, cause it yes. does just makes you not assume things and sort of everybody comes from their own place and we don't exactly know where that is. So Anyway, no. I thought it was a good, I thought it was worth reading. I always worth reading. I agree. Books, so. I agree. And then um, I'll let you introduce our thoughts for our next book. So we were thinking that we would do the book Circe by Madeline Miller. And uh, I, I have just started reading it. And uh, it's, it's interesting in, in uh, taking an epic 
character that we we know from mythology, we know a very, very little about uh, her from mythology. And then the, the author just spins it and goes on about Circe's reality. So I, I'm really enjoying it so far, and I look forward to to having a chance to talk about it. Yeah, another another woman power, girl power book. I love that. Yep. <laughs> My, yep. Our favorites, of course. <laughs> so, um, so in this podcast, we decided that we are going to uh, put together the December and the February edition of the journal because number one, there are just some great articles. And then there's some parallel articles um, that seem to go well together for discussion. Yeah. So um, the first one that we wanted to talk about was in the December issue, which I think there were some really important things to highlight, which was the NASPAG's position statement on crisis pregnancy centers in the United States. This so. is such an important one. This is, you know, it's it's really a well-written statement. It was it was really uh, developed um, by um, leaders in the field, who um, some of whom are part of NASPAG and some of whom are part of of SAM, and some some both. Um, so I thought it was it was very very well written and uh, really. Um, outlines the the problems related to these uh, crisis pregnancy centers, which are really all about dissuading pregnant women from considering abortion. It's, it's just such an insidious thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I guess when I read it, I talked about growth mindset. I just didn't even, I guess I'm naive. I had no idea that there are many school districts that just only, that actually allow these centers to come in and teach and they teach abstinence only until marriage in, in our public schools. So I think there were just some some information tidbits in there that would kind of shock the readers. I, <laughs> I, mean, was, I, I was shocked by that. that one as well. I did not know that either. Um, I, you know, I, I can't help but think of, of an experience well before I left Cincinnati. So I've been here at Stanford for uh, since 2007. And well before then, there was a, um, an abortion center not far from the university, an abortion clinic. And right across the street, there was one of these crisis pregnancy centers with a huge billboard above it. And it, it looked, I mean, it, you, you would have to think hard to know what kind of a place it was. It was implying that it was a medical center. Um, and that's really what they do. They want people to think that they are providing appropriate medical care. And the other insidious thing at that time, and it's been quite a while, this information dates, dates me, um, but the fact they've been around so long that I can remember um, looking up for a patient in the yellow pages abortion so we don't wow. even think about yellow pages anymore as a <laughs> so people might not know what those are <laughs> that's dating ourselves here but true it is but these <laughs> clinics would list themselves under abortion clinics Ugh, and they're right. doing the same thing now just online so they have optimized their search words and keywords so that if you search for abortion or even contraception these clinics may come up and, and you just wouldn't have a clue oh, that they're not, you know, medical centers providing appropriate medical yeah. information. So uh, providing misinformation about abortion, including the ideas 
that uh, abortions increase the risk of breast cancer and mental health problems, misinformation even about contraception, focusing on failure rates and side effects, and uh, even promoting the idea that ACOG is labeled unproven and unethical, that abortion, uh, medication abortion can be reversible. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that is a whole scary topic as well, I know. Well, I think that was just a great uh, NASPAG position sentence or statement, and it's, you know, right there in the front of the journal. So that's a great one to read. I thought that like the nice summary sentence I was talking to one of um, my residents I was working with, and it basically says crisis pregnancy centers often provide inaccurate health information and attempt to thwart the use of safe, acceptable and desired healthcare services, particularly contraception and abortion. So that's just that's something we all have to keep our eyes open for and help guide it our patients says away it. from that. Yeah. I think it's interesting in California, there have been efforts to really um, outlaw or limit or um, insist that these um, fake clinics, really, these crisis pregnancy centers would post something that would state that they don't really provide accurate information or abortion or even referral for abortion, and and that that has gotten shot down in the courts. Yeah, that is so surprising. And sometimes I feel so... Um, I guess, protected and naive because, you know, here we academically talk about, oh, you know, at a first pregnancy visit, we should be asking, is this a desired pregnancy? I mean, just these very basic sensitive questions, whereas there's these centers out here that are doing this work that's so undermining it. I guess it's just not something everybody thinks about. So they're not definitely, they're definitely not practicing in the world of, you know, driven by medical guidelines or any stretch of the imagination there. So, yes, uh, again, I would encourage all to to read the statement because it's well written. It's well referenced uh, and a very uh, strongly worded statement that's very appropriate coming from NASPAG and, and Sam. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's shift gears a little bit to the two next articles that we wanted to talk about. One was from the December JPEG edition titled Psychosocial Overview of Gender Affirmative Care. And this was by Jill Wagner and um, their team, including Dr. Forcier, if I'm saying it right, from Rhode Island, who does you know tons of wonderful research in our transgender and uh, gender diverse population. And then the second article is in the February edition with the same team, but this lead author is Dr. Juanita Hodax. And um, she's from Seattle Pediatrics. And that one's titled Medical Options for Care of the Gender Diverse and Transgender Youth. So sort of looking at the, the psychosocial care and then, then the treatment modalities in the second article. So um, let's talk about the first one, the psychosocial overview uh, first, because I think this one's really nice because it just right from the get-go talks about the importance of collaboration um, between care providers for patients who take care of these patients. And that's right up our alley, right up our alley in PAG uh, is all of our collaborative work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, certainly major medical centers now are putting together um, gender affirming care um, through interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary uh, clinics. And, and our pediatric endocrinologists work with our adolescent medicine folks and with us and uh, are providing really excellent care that is um, just um, 
life-saving for many of these kids that are seen who, who finally find a clinician who uh, listens to them and who will work with them um, around all kinds of issues related to uh, things like menstrual dysphoria, right. uh, which is certainly an area where we as gynecologists can be helpful. Right. No, I think that that is something I definitely wanted to talk about with regards to the next, um, the treatment modalities too, because I think that's super key. Um, and I think this article is, is a nice one that's pretty comprehensive for some of our colleagues who maybe aren't working in this arena yet, because, you know, it talks about the terminology and what the care entails. And I thought one of the nice things for people writing these articles and thinking about submitting is they really targeted the idea of why they're publishing it in this journal. Like what is pertinent for a PAG provider? Yes. And that was a really nice thing to read because I think people sometimes don't utilize that important tactic when they publish or why they submit it to the to your journal, for example. Like why why here? What is good for our readers? So this was an invited review. These two are were invited reviews. And so in that category in JPEG, um, we will find an expert and they and invite they and invite them with their team uh, to submit a review. And what we ask then is that they these writers who are well-known experts in the field would submit an outline um, to us. So uh, Lise Quint and Bob Brown are working with me around uh, finding reviews, to review topics and inviting reviewers and um, reviewing an outline that is submitted by the authors to really assure that the authors can focus exactly on what you say, what is pertinent for PEG clinicians. And so I think the authors have done a superb job in both of these articles, but in particular in the first one, as you say. And then the reviewers always contribute to making an article uh, submission stronger. So the reviewers had some good comments to make about how to, how to focus the, um, the content of the review. And uh, so, so I'm pleased that you're saying that it, it really comes out as being very helpful for PAG clinicians because that's entirely the intent. Yeah, and it did. And I think, you know, as a, as a PAG provider, I think we're really specially equipped to handle these kind of challenging clinical dilemmas. Number one, just because we know the right people to talk to, for like you just said, pediatric endocrinologists or specific surgeons who have interests and being able to provide very genuine and non-judgmental dialogue, which is really important because we have to individualize this situation. And they talk a lot about that in the article, um, you know, and, and promoting confidential visits and including families in dialogues when it's appropriate. So I think they did a really nice job sort of outlining what you can do to build your practice to be more sensitive to this population. Absolutely. Our, uh, the learners in our clinic, the medical students and, and residents from both gynecology and, and uh, from pediatrics in our gender clinic uh, are really uh, learning how to expand the psychosocial assessment, the heads assessment, and, and routinely asking questions about gender identity. And uh, just by virtue of asking those questions, um, notes that diversity is a norm. And so I, I, right. this is really something that, that is very basic, but very important. 
Right. And then just my last thought when I read that article, which is, you know, why so many of us go into PAG is somewhere along the road, we learned that sometimes for a teenager or someone who's struggling, it just takes that one person, right? It may not be the parent, but maybe it's a friend or an aunt or even you, you know, the doctor. And I think yes. that article said that same thing, like you can be that person. And so I don't know, that always triggers a soft spot for me because that's definitely part of our specialty that's so inspiring and, and makes me feel happy that we do it. It's, them... it's pretty important. I mean, the, the rates of, of attempted suicide and depression in this population is, are just very high. Right. And uh, if we can be the, the person who listens and hears what the teen is saying, then that's really important. Right. Absolutely. So that was a great, I just, I love that article. I felt really inspired. Um, and then, so I was happy to see in the February edition, there was the follow-up one that you talked about. So that one is the medical options. And so that leans right into, um, I know one of your favorite topics is sort of managing that menstrual dysphoria you mentioned. Um, they talk a little bit about that in the article, but I like to hear, you know, your thoughts and how you try to optimize that. So um, important and important to, you know, when sometimes even when we see kids referred to our clinic for to address menstrual problems and even just menstrual pain, um, trying to, again, sort things out and is there uh, are there gender issues for this teen and uh, is there real menstrual dysphoria as well? Um, we do have a handout that we give to, to kids and parents about the options for menstrual suppression. And, and we base the document on the article that I had written with Susan Ernst from the University of Michigan on menstrual suppression for girls and women with developmental delay. And so that document is available online and, and have, we've modified it a bit to be appropriate for the population of kids with uh, gender-related issues and menstrual dysphoria. So um, you know, the idea that we can't quite turn off periods like turning <laughs> off a faucet. <laughs> Which um, is very is, frustrating. <laughs> it is frustrating. It's frustrating to our patients. Right. Um, and I think that we need to be encouraging that over time, uh, things will get better, that we can virtually always find an option, whether that would be oral progestins or Depo-Provera or extended cycle pills or levonorgestrel IUDs, that we can find an option that will work for them. But I, I don't have a magic wand. I did I <laughs> talk about that with kids. I wish I had a magic wand that right. I could wave and take away your periods right now. Um, but if we work together, then we can generally get, get to that point. And, and so that kind of encouragement is really important. Right, right. And I think we were able to talk about that on our last podcast that sometimes, you know, half the girls are successful in a few months with these methods, but the other half take, you know, 10 to 18 months sometimes, and that's still within the realm of normal. It's just, you know, not normal for someone who wants to not have a menstrual cycle. So frustrating. Um, and then I think the other the other nice thing that this second article spoke to was the discussion of fertility preservation for patients who are considering hormone blockers or um, gender affirming hormones or even surgery down the road. And I think that 
it's definitely a growing and emerging area in, in our field. And something that, that doesn't get talked about enough, uh, but something that is important as well. Absolutely. So um, I know that, that our oncofertilitynorthwestern.edu website has some great Oncofertility Consortium information. I definitely have yes. referred patients there as a great resource. And it nicely uh, outlines the centers all around the country that offer ovarian tissue cryopreservation for our younger and younger girls. Um, and then this one talks about oocyte cryopreservation, just you know, right. connecting with our fertility specialists. And, you know, they don't talk too much about the issues with cost and coverage and legislation, which is ongoing, but um, that I'm sure there's more to come in the future on that. It's a difficult, that is a difficult issue and, and, and a problem and, and finding champions and, and working with our colleagues in uh, reproductive endocrine and infertility um, to um, tap into some of the options and, and really be sure that we are offering the best options for the kids that we see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one, there's just like a couple things in this article that I would have loved to see, and maybe we could do a follow-up down the road is, is talking a little bit about regret. I think even in our medical field, there's some misinformation. And um, I know I've even worked with some of my own peer group and, and working at the medical school in uh, North State, we've just had some debates about the levels of regret based on old studies and sort of updating that information would be really helpful and yes. supportive um, yes. because the times have changed. And I think our diagnostic management and our, our protocols are very different from the studies of the seventies and the eighties, but still had quite low regrets, but, uh, and then they didn't talk about HPV vaccine in our transgender youth, which always should be on everybody's radar. Good point. Really, really good. Those point. were my two. Those were my yep. two. Well, what about these two things? Yeah, no, those are, <laughs> those are great. Um, you know, the, the concept of, of needing to address pregnancy pre uh, prevention, depending on the sexual activities that right. individuals may be engaging in, uh, is also really important. It is. As and well. we do know that these, these patients don't get cervical cancer screening. I mean, they just have a much lower level. So again, another important role for the HPV vaccine. For sure. You know, maybe this is the population we want to capture more. So those were really, I think those are just great articles. I, I love them. So I'm glad you invited those wonderful authors. They did a great job. Um, so moving on to number three, we were going to talk about two articles based on pain perception and the IUD. Uh, one article was by uh, Dr. Callahan, Dana Callahan from Boston Brigham and Women's Children's, and it was titled, Will It Hurt? And I wanted to add in there, yeah, a little bit. Um, the intrauterine <laughs> device insertion experience and long-term acceptability among adolescents and young women. And basically, it they did an interesting study. They compared the IUD insertion experience with the implant users yep. and how it affects their long-term acceptability of their IUD. And they included young women aged 13 to 21. So what did you think about the responses and, and the study? So uh, we tend to think in part based on the findings from the CHOICE study. And so with the CHOICE study, younger women were much more likely to choose the implant and younger teens were much more likely to choose the implant and the older teens much more likely to choose an IUD. And it isn't always um, broken down in, in that way. 
Um, but I, I think that, that it is interesting. I see lots of, I, I see girls who have been referred by their friends. Right. So their friend Absolutely. has had an IUD and really likes it. And so they are interested in, in getting an IUD, which, which I think is interesting. Whatever their perceptions are of the pain, they are pretty willing still to, to recommend it. <laughs> right. I love that about the teens. They're like, that was the worst ever. I would never do it, but I'd totally recommend it to my friend. So <laughs> I think that's so, that's so telling, but I love when they always talk about that in our studies of teenagers, but, and they found it's that in done case, now. right? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, and I think, I don't think we think about enough that anxiety is for sure a barrier to IUD initiation. And I think this study really reflects that you know, if our younger patients um, are worried about it and maybe something they don't want to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and then they talk about that we don't have great strategies, the paucity of literature or, or modalities to help address this, not the procedure pain, but the pre-procedure perception of pain. Um, so that, that's a tough one. I mean, I don't know how to optimize something like that. It is a tough one, although I think, you know, it made me think a little about my own practices and one of the things that I do when talking to teens about options, even if a teen is saying, mm, I don't think that I for me, um, if that's the case, then I will, I'll explore a little more. What have they heard about it? Do they know someone who's had it? What, you know, what have they heard? Um, and then I will always say, you know, one of the things that I do when I put in an IUD is that we address issues around the fact that it's a crampy procedure. And so I recommend some, um, some medicine before the procedure. So I typically would recommend NSAIDs. The evidence suggests it's not so helpful for the procedure itself, but for the cramping afterwards, it can be helpful. And then I always say that I will give a local anesthetic. So I routinely do a peristorbical block and I liken that to what they might have if they had a tooth filled at the dentist. And, and so just that reassurance, so they're aware that there would be options for pain relief if and when they choose it. They may not choose it right now, they may go with the implant first, but maybe somewhere down the road they may choose. Yeah, right. And I think that, and just sometimes acknowledging that there might be discomfort, but we have ways you know, to help you, yep. could help. And then I, I think this is a nice segue into the February article, which was from Dr. Akers. Uh, and it was her, it was a secondary analysis from her prior IUD study. And this was titled Anticipated Pain. Just the title is funny. Anticipated Pain During IUD Insertion. Sort of says it all. Yep. And they, they evaluated almost 100 adolescents and young women from 14 to 22 from three family planning clinics in Philadelphia. And there, I like these ones where there's a control group um, with that, they had a 1% lidocaine or the sham paracervical block, and both were 10 mLs. And then they looked at um, the pain via visual analog scales at various times during the process. Um, I think I think one of their their findings that was significant was that white women had a significantly lower median anticipated pain score, uh, and then that not surprisingly, women who anticipated the pain. At a, at a higher score, experience yeah. the pain at a higher yeah. score. That was, that <laughs> so, was not surprising. <laughs> that one was like, yeah, pretty much. Um, well, but, but what did you think about some of the uh, thoughts and, and findings from this study, the secondary analysis of the study? 
Well, I think the the racial differences are important. Um, so I think I think we need to be aware of that. I'm not sure what the take home messages are there, other than that we need to be aware that we may we may be as clinicians we may be perceived differently by our patients depending on their past experiences or the past experiences of others that they know or their community. There may be many reasons that they would be more anxious about right. medical procedures. So that's important to know. Um, for the individual, I just think um, addressing this anticipation of pain in as many ways as we can. And I love that this was, you know, this, this study and the, as a follow-up and the previous study that showed the value of the paracervical block, which, which did help in terms of pain is, is wonderful in terms of, of having a, a blinded study. So we can really rely on the, on the science, but I would still say that the things that we do with our individual patients um, are still really important. The vocal, local, uh, talking to <laughs> them with a soothing and calming tone of voice and explaining what we're going to do before we do it. And, and uh, you know, those things make the experience easier and better. So I, would, I don't neglect those things, even though those weren't specifically addressed in the study. Right, right. And I mean, certainly things like, you know, sometimes we'll have music in the room, yes. we'll have them bring their own yes. music or in the hand, we have a handheld fan that seems to be popular. Ah, and, you I know, like all that. these, we have all these, you know, fancy lights or anything to create a better scene and then yep. let it pass quickly. Yep. Um, and I think the fact that it is fast, I mean, this yes. isn't a prolonged uh, office procedure, but um, I know. I think I think these kind of things just to acknowledge that that is still a barrier as we try to promote yes. LARPs and our young people and recognizing it was informative. So I thought it were great. That was a great pair of studies in these two editions. I agree. Well, I think we've covered it all. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't have any more thoughts. Do you have any more comments or thoughts? We'll, we'll regroup again for our next edition and maybe we'll do that at NASPAG. That would be a great thing to do. We'll have lots of people there and uh, we can talk about how we might involve. Um, we might even get some authors to, uh, to speak with us about a few things. So uh, I think uh, I look forward to our next one. I know. Well, me too. Well, thank you, Dr. Hillard. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. Take care. Okay. You too. Mm -hmm.